Erickson, and it's come to my attention that some of you are having a hard time fitting in here. You're a little different from everyone else. Well, you know, I want you to know that I've been there. You know, and I've got a few tips for you that will help you fit in here at Scottsdale Bible Church and maybe prevent you from feeling like you're going against the grain. Maybe you wanted to get a good seat for the next worship service, so you were there as soon as that last service let out. I'll be honest, you'll be going against the grain. I'm sorry. I'm trying to get through, sorry. Perhaps the Holy Spirit moved you to stand during one of the worship songs. Be forewarned, the Holy Spirit may have only moved you. Maybe all you had was large denomination bills for the offering, and so you had the bright idea of, of making change from the offering bag. Believe it or not, some people frown on that. So next time you or someone you love is having a hard time navigating Scottsdale Bible Church, go ahead and use these tips. Hey, they helped me. Look where I am. Well, that was our little transition to let you know we're talking about conflict here at our church for the, well, it's about a five or six week series. It's really our, our center fall series here at our church. We're using Mark chapter 2 to uh, learn from Jesus in what really is a chapter all about conflict on how you and I can start to navigate life in the hurricane a, a bit better when we are having conflict in our lives. And so as our chapel next door and our venue across campus and our Cactus Campus and now our new Mountain Valley Campus, join us for our time in the Word. Would you all bow with me and let's pray and commit this time to the Lord. Father, uh, we are gathered here today as multiple congregations because all of us can agree that in some way we are seeking after you, pining after you. We, we love you. We want to know you more. And Lord, we also want our lives to align more with your truth and your word and what you've revealed to us. And so, Lord, we're taking an honest look in this series at this idea of conflict and the fact that we all have it in our lives. And so I pray that as we learn from the masters, we learn from Jesus himself, how he navigated conflict when he was on this earth. God, would you give us uh, insight and wisdom and, Lord, even some tools uh, that we can put into our tool belt this week uh, as we navigate conflict in our daily lives. God, as always, we will deflect all glory to you. We'll give you praise for that which you do and say and, and reveal in our lives. And uh, we're grateful for this time together and for your word. Bless this time, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So last week we began this series by simply noting that there are times that we have conflict and it's not always or necessarily our fault. So the theme of last week was focusing on what we do when we have conflict that kind of mugs us, that blindsides us, that, that is conflict when it's not our fault. And though I'm not going to recap at all last week's message, you can get it online if you were not here, we simply learn from Jesus how to navigate conflict when it's not always our fault. And i got to tell you, this morning, however, we're going to switch gears significantly because that's what the text is going to take us to. Uh, this morning, as we make our way through Mark chapter 2, we're going to shift gears to a very different kind of conflict that you and I experience, namely the kind of conflict in which we make a choice to enter into, the kind of conflict that we look for, the kind of conflict that we experience when we are going against the grain of our culture and our world. And though some of you are tempted to think right now, well, Jamie, I don't do that. I don't ever go looking for conflict. The reality is you do. 
that you might not even know that you do. But if I followed you around for a week, there would be spots in your week where I would notice that you did something or said something that would be commensurate with your value system, commensurate with what you believe is right. But I would point out to you, that just went against the grain of the culture and the world around you and look out because it's gonna engender some conflict. And so though it's not necessarily wrong that we do this, I mean, going against the grain, it is good to understand, however, what it is and how we can add some rhyme and reason to our conflict when it happens because we brought it on through going against the grain. And so let's read about how Jesus did this when he was on this earth. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to open up to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading just a few verses, beginning at verse 13 and up through verse 17. If you didn't bring a Bible, as always, the Scripture will appear on the screen, as well as you can read, about, read the Scripture in your outline. And so why don't we all stand, and venues and Cactus and Mountain Valley, to stand for the reading of God's Word. And uh, I'll be reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Follow along, please. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You can have a seat. And so there you have it. You can't miss it here, folks. Jesus intentionally moving into conflict in this scene before us. And so here is the point that we get from this scenario. It's not really hard to understand. And that is that there are times in life where we must go against the grain of current culture around us. And when we do, we should expect a cost-benefit result. And that's what Jesus shows us in this account before us here. That there are times where as we follow Jesus, we're going to be called or we decide to go against the grain of the current culture around us. And when we choose to do so, we should expect that there's going to be some costs associated with it as well as some benefits. And so track what's happening in this scene before us and you'll see what I mean. It all begins relatively mundane there in verse 13. Jesus leaves the house that he's in. He goes out to the open air by the Sea of Galilee, and he begins teaching people. Pretty normal stuff for Jesus. But then the action heats up like quickly and big time. And it heats up because Jesus does two intentional actions recorded there in verses 14 and 15. The first thing he does in verse 14 is call Levi, or Matthew is his other name, he wrote the Gospel of Matthew, to become a follower of himself. Jesus calls Matthew to be a disciple, and not just any disciple, but one of the top 12, clearly a first round draft pick for Jesus. I mean, that's what's happening here. And though some of you are saying, oh, well, big deal, he called a guy named Matthew, this is a big deal because it tells us that Matthew is a tax collector. And what you simply need to know is that in that culture, tax collectors were despised more than just about any other people in that culture. 
I mean, some of you don't like IRS agents today because they hound you about your taxes, but, but think of maybe how an IRS agent makes you feel uncomfortable. Multiply that by about 100 or 1,000. Now you're going to start to understand the Greco-Roman Jewish mindset in the first century toward a tax collector. And the reason that these people were despised is because they were immoral, they were debased, they were greedy, and they abused the Roman tax system to no end. You see, they didn't have a sophisticated tax system back then. The Romans taxed the people within the Greco-Roman world, and yet the way that they did it is that they found these, these kind of hard tax collectors that they said you need to collect this amount of people for, or this amount of money from this amount of people in your certain area. But then they said, watch this, that for your pay, for your reimbursement, you can add whatever you want to what you collect and get to keep that yourself. It was classic subcontracting without any kind of contract. <laughs> And so it was a system that was ripe for abuse and abused this system tax collectors did. And nobody liked them because most of them were very, very immoral. In fact, if you don't believe me, listen to how Philo, an historian outside the Bible, writing about seven years after Jesus' ministry, describes a tax collector. Look at your screen. He says, Capito is the tax collector for Judea. He holds the population in contempt. When he came there, he was a poor man, but he amassed such wealth in various forms by defrauding and embezzling the people. So as a result of this, tax collectors, get this, were unwelcome at church or synagogue. They were disqualified from ever serving in public office by the Roman government, and they were literally outcast by most all of society. They were rich, but they were pariahs, and nobody liked them. Uh, to put it in modern-day language, they would make Howard Stern and Mick Jagger look like saints. So you get the idea. Uh, those were tax collectors in Jesus' day. And here's what's happening here, guys. Jesus was walking by Matthew's tax collecting booth, and he calls him to be a follower. And we have to assume that Matthew at least had heard Jesus and had been listening to him and knew something about him. But he up and calls him to be a follower, and immediately... Like with no room for repentance, no room for a sustained life change, no room to show people that he really means his business in following Jesus, he gets up and begins following Jesus. And Jesus receives him. And it's scandalous, as we're going to see, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day. You'll see why in a minute. But before we get to that, notice that there's a second thing that brings on this conflict, kind of adding insult to injury, and that is that Jesus then goes to Matthew's house, where Matthew has invited a bunch of other tax collectors, and what Mark describes as sinners, and Jesus essentially has a party with them. That word sinner there simply means anybody who had a disregard for God's law in the Old Testament and the lifestyle of the Jewish people. Again, outcasts. And when it says that Jesus was reclining with them in verse 15, that's a loaded term back then that denoted a true celebratory banquet. That's what Mark's trying to describe here. Again, to use our terms today, Jesus is partying with these people. And then as if all of this were not enough, 
the text wraps up there in verse 15 by saying that many of these ruffians became followers of Jesus as well. And again, that would have gone against the grain of how the Jewish culture functioned back then. And it's right at this point when the religious leaders of Jesus' day get a whiff of what is going on here, that the conflict that Jesus knew was going to come through going against the grain comes. And it comes like a tsunami. And you have to understand verse 16 to understand the profundity of it all. It says in verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. Now, to understand the weight of this passage, you, you need to, to relate something to your everyday life. Um, we all know that there are certain ways that you and I can ask questions or be asked questions in our lives. And in one sense, it can be a curious, gentle, benign question. But there's other times where people can ask a similar question in a biting, angry, accusatory way. Give me a head now that you all understand that. So if you're a guy and, and you come home at, at 7 o'clock from night from a long day at work and your wife says, how was your day, honey? Then that's an innocent, curious, loving, benign question. However, if you're a guy and you come home at 2 in the morning smelling of alcohol and you're supposed to be married and living a responsible life and your wife says, where have you been till 2 in the morning? And what is that I smell on your breath? then that's probably not an innocent, curious, benign question. We all understand the difference. Why is that important? Because this is category B here. But when the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, ask Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're not just curious. It's not an innocent, benign question. They are accusing him of doing something that no good rabbi, no good Jew would have done in Jesus' culture. You see, the, these religious leaders and these scribes were experts on the Old Testament law. And they knew from their understanding of the Old Testament, as well as, now don't miss this, years of tradition and how the Old Testament became lived out within an actual community and culture, that at least within that first century culture, you didn't associate with people like this. It might be hard for some of you to understand, but churches and religious communities over time tend to develop, based upon their understanding of truth, certain lifestyles, certain ways of doing things that might be right, with the truth might be askew or wrong of the truth, but it engenders, becomes a part of the culture anyways. And over six, seven hundred years before Jesus' day, they developed an oral tradition within Judaism, and one part of that oral tradition is that you just didn't hang around people who were thumbing their nose at God. You didn't give them a lot of time. They had made their bed, and now they're supposed to sleep in it. And so Jesus was going against the grain of how they all functioned back then. Listen to how the Mishnah would say it. The Mishnah is an eventual written record of the oral traditions that were alive in Jesus' day that guided most Jewish rabbis. It says in the Mishnah, He that undertakes to be trustworthy as a Jew may not be a guest of one of the people of the land, meaning a foreign land, nor may he receive him as a guest in his house. 
He should not recline at the table. Isn't it interesting that Mark uses that exact phrase? He should not recline at the table in the company of ignorant persons. And folks, whether you agree with this or not, we're going to see what Jesus does with this in a minute. Whether you agree with this or not, here's what you need to know. Everybody knew this. Everybody knew that a good religious leader in Jesus' day would never hang out with a guy like Matthew. You didn't fellowship with him. You didn't eat with him. You certainly didn't party with them, especially if you were a rabbi or a Jewish teacher. The crowds knew this. The Roman authorities knew this. The tax collectors and sinners knew this. The Jews knew this. And I believe even Jesus knew this. He was going against the grain of the current religious societal establishment, just inviting controversy and conflict. And we got to ask why. And the answer, I think, is really simple. Because it was the right thing to do. Amen? Let's take another run at that. Because it was the right thing to do. Amen? I mean, they were wrong. And he was right. Jesus would push back on a regular basis on this oral tradition that had developed within Judaism. Basically saying, I have a high view of God's law in the Old Testament, but you guys have totally misunderstood it. And where in the Old Testament does it say that you're supposed to shun these tax collectors and sinners, especially when they were never really a part of the religious community in the first place? We're to be a light to them. We're to reach out to them. And that's what Jesus came along and tried to help these people understand. He came full of grace and truth, fueled by love and faith and a clear sense of God's agenda for how to reach lost people. And so for him, it was a no-brainer. Of course you're going to go against the grain on this one. It's just that going against the grain was going to have some costs associated with it, like persecution, misunderstandings, loss of friendships, even family who wouldn't understand what Jesus was doing. But it was also going to have some benefits, (laughs) like lost people coming to faith and being in the center of God's will and agenda for his life. Uh, Folks, it's going against the grain, pure and simple, intentional, deliberate, well-chosen, and landing Jesus right in the middle of the vortex of conflict. That's what's going on in this account. So here's what I want to ask and answer before we go to the communion time. And it's simply this. What does this mean for us? What do we take home from this into our Monday through Saturday world? Two things I want you to chew on here this morning. And the first one is this, that we need to be thoughtful then and count the cost over which particular grain we're going to go against in our culture. I think that's one of the biggest take-homes of this passage. You know, Jesus actually teaches us this. He does. you got to understand this, this, this account pretty closely and clearly to see it. But as we've already noted, Jesus was deliberate. He was God-led. He was mission-focused. He was love-centered in choosing to do what he did here to bring on the conflict. If you don't believe me, listen to how one Bible expert, probably the most notable authority alive today on the Gospel of Mark, a guy by the name of Archie France, describes what is doing here in this story before look up on your screens he says this he says to call a tax collector to join his group was a daringly provocative action not only incurring the disapproval of the religious establishment but also risking the giving offense to the patriotic instincts of the common people and then he says this this was jesus's deliberately chosen stance 
I love that last phrase. This was Jesus' deliberately chosen stance. In other words, Jesus was thoughtful, and he counted the cost over which grain to go against. And he knew God's heart. He knew God's truth. I mean, he's the second person of the Trinity, God come in the flesh. And he knew which were the big issues to go against and which were the small issues to maybe just let go of. He knew the difference, to put it in biblical terms, between the flesh and the spirit. That which comes from that human, fallen, fleshly side, which though Jesus didn't have, Jesus wasn't fallen, but he was in the flesh, so he was tempted with all things that we are tempted with. So he, he had that pull in his life. But that, that which is from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who was guiding Jesus in all he did. And as believers now, you and I, the Spirit guides us in all we do. But we have a battle between the flesh and the Spirit. Jesus always chose the Spirit. And the point, is like, the point for us is similar, that we likewise need to be wise and mature and God-focused, thoughtful and counting the cost when it comes to going against the grain in our culture today. And guys, I think this is a huge challenge to you and to me. Now, let's get really practical here. I don't know if you ever noticed it, but I, I noticed that there's kind of, well, Christians tend to go to one extreme or the other. Give me a head now that you all understand that. We just, I mean, we are a very passionate group of people, and we tend to kind of let the pendulum swing. So I've been a Christian now 33 years, and in those 33 years, I've noticed that there are some Christians, now let's try to be gentle here, but there are some Christians who are constantly angry, constantly combative, constantly going against the grain, their radar is set to like, if there's a conflict, they're going to find it. Have you ever met a Christian like that? I have. And it's like every cause that has any worthiness at all, they're on it, but they're just angry and mean-spirited and, and just constantly uh, having a sandpaper relationship with the culture around them. That's one extreme. But then there's the other extreme <laughs> where I like how one missions a guy called it years ago. He calls these the evangelifish. They're the, those of us among us who, you know, tend to maybe need to get a backbone when it comes to culture. That, that we're constantly the peacemakers. We hate conflict. We avoid it at all costs. And so we kind of cave in on our value systems on a regular basis when it comes to the culture around us. And you see, I don't think either extreme is helpful. I think both are errant when it comes to the call here to be thoughtful and God-led in counting the cost and regularly going against the grain, but making sure that it's what God wants us to do. I'm going to give you some questions in a minute here to ask yourself to discern whether when you go against the grain is, is a God thing or not. Um, and how to discern whether you should go against the grain or not. But before I do that, let me just uh, make a, a comment on how there are a couple different levels that you and I experience going against the grain in our daily world. Now, the first level would, would be what I call a personal everyday level. In other words, you're going to probably confront it tomorrow in your relationships, at your work, in your family. There are just like little and big things every day where we're called to maybe consider going against the grain. Uh, but then there's what I call sweeping global issues that are confronting our American culture or our world that we're also called collectively to go against the grain on. So you got personal everyday issues and then sweeping global issues. And my point is I think it takes wisdom and discernment, counting the cost to know on both levels when we should go against the grain. Let me give you a couple of examples. 
about eight, nine years ago when I was pastoring in Cleveland, I had uh, reignited some wonderful friendships from my childhood. Chagrin Falls is my hometown where I'm from. I was pastoring uh, my home church there. And one of the guys that I would spend some time with was a good buddy way back from elementary school. We'd jog together, do other things together. And when I became a Christian, I shared my faith with him very clearly, but he was not quite ready to accept Christ and commit his life to Christ. And still, by the time we were in our 40s there, he had not yet gotten to that point. But we had a great friendship, and we loved to hang out together, and, and certainly I would, and, and we'd spend time together. But one of the things that he would do on a regular basis, and I want to be very, very careful how I say this, because as you're going to see in a second, I, I abhor this, is that he would use God's name on a regular basis, but not in the same way that I use God's name. Do you all understand what I'm saying? In fact, he assumed God had a last name, and it began with a D. And on a regular basis, he would say God's name, and then a follow-up name, GD. And I got to tell you, every time he would say it, and he would use it like candy, it just did something in my spirit. And, and again, I'm not, a, I'm not like a really, um, I'm, not, I'm not like, I mean, I can take swearing. I, I hear people swear all the time. And, and, and I don't like it, but I don't usually correct it. I don't, I don't say that. But this particular phrase that he would use all the time just really, really bothered me. One of the reasons it bothered me is it is one of the Ten Commandments, that you shouldn't use the name of the Lord in vain. And though that means a lot of other things, at the very least it means you shouldn't say GD all the time in your life. And so one day when we were out jogging, he was just throwing it around. He actually associated my name with it. You know, I said something, he said, well, GD, Jamie, you know, and, and this. And, and I just stopped. And I said to him, I said, you know, I said, I've been giving a lot of thought to what I want to say to you right now, but I'm just going to let you know that when you do that every time, it is so offensive to me. And though I know you're not at the same spot where I am at spiritually, and I totally respect that, I think it's offensive to God. And, and I'm going to ask you, at least when you're around me, to not say that anymore. Because it just is getting in the way of my relationship with you. I, I would have loved if he would have fell down at that moment and called me blessed. And said, boy, you know, that is like the best advice I've been given all month. But as you can, can imagine, he didn't. He looked at me and he was embarrassed. He felt a little bit of shame. He felt a little bit of, of, of even defensiveness. And he said, hey, I mean, I didn't mean to offend you. All right, you won't hear that from me again. And we finished out our run. And a week went by and another week went by and he was not calling me. And I called him and he didn't return my call. And what I feared was going to happen, because I did count the cost from this, happened. And that's it. He didn't want to be with me anymore. He was probably angry with me. He probably felt a little bit of shame. And I feared that I might risk or ruin the friendship. Eventually, I called him up and left a voicemail saying, look, I know why you're not calling me. I still love you. We're good friends. Call me back. And he did. And over time, but it took some time, we were able to re-engage our friendship so that when I left Cleveland to come here, we've continued to stay in touch. It actually had a pretty, pretty good ending, though I'm still hoping that he comes to the Lord. Uh, but, you know, that's an example in life where I could have gone either way, right? I mean, I could have just ignored it and said, gosh, I don't want to ruin the friendship. I don't want to risk it. I mean, he's close to the Lord and all this. Or I could have gone against the grain and, and, and counted the cost and done so. And, you know, I'm not saying it's a black and white issue. You're going to hear in a minute how I chose 
to go against the grain on that and why I believe it was God-led. But I think we're confronted with those scenarios all the time in culture, aren't you? All the time in our relationships, having to choose when to go against the grain and risk some things, but also maybe have some great benefits, and when not to. Now, now hang out of that thought and look up here on the screen. This would be a chart of some of the more global sweeping issues we have. That was a personal example of everyday issues. I would say that you and I also have tons of choices every day over what things that we're going to kind of go to the mat for when it comes to things going on in our culture. This is a list I developed a few years back when I was teaching initially on Mark chapter 2 here. And the list on the left on your screen there are issues that I would argue from history and present day that I believe are issues that you would want to go against the grain on. Issues that you would want to go to the mat for, issues that you would want to say, hey, these are ones that I can risk you know, a friendship or whatever over these. I mean, the Reformation uh, in the 15th century was about the nature of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? Faith alone and Christ alone. I think that's a pretty big issue. Racism has to do with what it means to be made in God's image and that we're all equal in God's image. And if anything, in the last 400 years of the Western world, whether it be Wilberforce in England or Martin Luther King Jr. here in America, we've learned that this is an issue worth defending or going against uh, racism. And then religious freedom, which I would argue has tied to it the nature of human choice. The fact that God has made us to be beings who need to freely choose him and and that defending religious freedom in any culture that we find it in, which is what Alliance Defending Freedom does, one of the groups here in Scottsdale, I would argue is a big issue. I've thought a lot about these issues over the years And I'm going to show you why I think these are important in a minute. And I I think they are worth going against the grain on. But now, let me step on some toes. Look at the issue on the right. (laughs) Modes of baptism, whether it's infant baptism or believer baptism, whether it's full immersion or sprinkling, educational choices, whether you homeschool your kid, private school your kid, or public school your kid, and, and then Bible translation choice, whether you use the King James Version or the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Bible, or as my wife does, the New International Version, <clears throat> whether you uh, do any of those. <laughs> now, see, here's my point in that. Let's, let's get down to the point. All those issues I have opinions on, that will not surprise you guys. I'm an ordained Baptist minister. That should say something right there. I don't believe in infant baptism. I've never baptized a baby in my life. I baptize believers because I think that, in my understanding, that's what the Word says. However, I understand that there's debate about that issue. I respect my Presbyterian friends, my Episcopalian friends. I understand that historically that's been a debatable issue. So here's the deal. I'm not going to the mat over that one. When it comes to school choice, oh my, I don't even want to go there. But I've had my kids in public school, private school, and, and, and Kim won't homeschool because that one's out of the thing. But, but we respect that. Now, when it comes to Bible translation, I just made you laugh on that. I got strong opinions on that one. I do. And Kim and I have wonderful dinner conversations about her reading the New International Version. It's not my translation of choice. But you know what I came to years ago? I thought, Jamie, chill out. If someone's reading the Bible, then just be happy. Amen? I mean, who cares about what translation? In a sense. In a sense. So that's my point. That's my point. 
I feel strongly about these issues. But here's what I do in my daily life. When I find myself getting too hot about these issues, and I find that it might risk a friendship, say, with Ed, my friend here in the third row, I pull back. In fact, Kim pulls me back on a regular basis. We were watching NCIS the other night, and I got an email, and I said, oh, pause it, i got to respond to this email. And she goes, what did I read it for? And I, and I said, I just have to respond to this right now. And she looks at me, she goes, let it go. <laughs> let it go. Well, it's not your job, Kim, it's mine. Let it go. See, on a regular basis, you and I deal with sweeping global issues, some of which I would say are important, the other are important, but I don't think they're worth going against the grain so much so that you risk disunifying the body of Christ. Uh, How do you know? How how do you know which issues to shrug off and not go against the grain on, which issues to go against the grain on and and, and go to the mat for? Here's five questions, rather quickly, but you might want to write these down. You might want to chisel these in stone, because I think they've been very, very helpful to me over the years. And these aren't mine. These are things I've gleaned from other people. Ask ask yourself these questions when you're, whether it's on a personal issue or a sweeping global issue, ask yourself these questions. First, how big of a deal is this to God? Now listen, in His concerns... Not your agenda, not your pet peeve, not your particular burr in your bonnet, but God and his concerns. And how do you know if it's a concern of God? Listen, guys, this book tells us that. When I was choosing to go against the grain with my friend and, and possibly risk it, I did pray about it. And, and, and I thought to myself, it's a ten, one of the Ten Commandments. I, I think that's a pretty big deal. I mean, this is not some obscure, debatable, gray issue. And though arguably my friend was breaking more than just one of the Ten Commandments at that time in his life, I I, I thought, you know, this particular one might be a good didactic experience for him to focus on that. And we did. We eventually talked about that and why it's important to me and why, at least around me, he shouldn't do this. But but, but I, I had a good question in my mind when I chose to do that, and that's that, was it important to God? And it was. A second question you might want to ask yourself is, what is the cost and what will this cost you? And this is especially important on the personal, everyday issues. I, I, I mean, we've got to be a little bit careful with this question because you might say, well, it's going to cost me a lot, so I won't do it, but God wants you to do it. So you've got to be a little bit careful here. But I think sometimes, and this is what Kim calls me on a lot, is that there are times where I want to go against the grain on an everyday personal issue, and Kim says, I don't think you've really counted the cost on that. We were going to visit relatives a few weeks ago for a funeral uh, back in the Midwest, and you know we were just talking about interacting with relatives, and I shared something with Kim that I think I might want to say <laughs> to somebody in my extended family, and Kim said, I don't think you want to say that. <laughs> she says, I don't think you realize what the, the cost will be to saying that. I don't think you've counted the cost on that one. And you know what? I, I, I think she was right. A third question you might want to ask is, why do you feel so passionate about this? This is a question of motivations. In other words, check your heart and your motivations, be honest. Is this just something about your self-protection and your agenda, or is this really a humble desire to help others? Again, when I confronted my friend on, on his usage of the name of God, um, I got to tell you that I, 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 I searched my soul on, is this just because it bothers you, Jamie, or, or do you think this might actually help him? And I really believed it would help him, and I think in the long run it has. So I think it's good for us to search our motives and make sure it's not just about the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, but that it's also about God and others. Fourth, what direction does God give you when you pray about it? 
This one's huge. I got to tell you, more than once when I see some angry, especially man, maybe going against the grain, because men tend to get really fired up and going against the grain a lot, and, and I'll say to them, because I'm just questioning whether they've really thought about it, I'll say, you know, what happened when you prayed about it? That's what happens. It gets really quiet. <laughs> and they give me that infamous deer in the headlight look that basically says, I didn't pray about it. And you see, that would scare me. I spent a lot of time in prayer before I talked to my friend uh, about that issue. I did. I asked God, God, is this right? Is this what I should do? Because uh, I don't know. And, and, and I think we all need to do that. I asked you a couple weeks ago, pray about this election coming up and how you're going to vote. Because those are sweeping global issues that are at stake here. And that when you go into the voting booth, pray about those issues and be God-led that his values are your values and that as you get a chance to vote, which is a wonderful thing in this free culture of ours, that you can vote commensurate with the faith that you have. Pray about those things. And then fifthly, what do your wise, godly friends say? This one's huge. Proverbs 15 verse 22 says, Without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. And again, I, I see a lot of Christians side skirt this one. I, more than one occasion, again, I don't mean to pick on you men, but I am one. And there's a, a lot of times where a man will be again, going against the grain and all fired up. You know, he's been watching like eight hours of Fox News and he's all excited about stuff. And he's just going against the grain. And I'll, and I'll say, you know, hey, uh, what does your wife think about all this passion that you have? And, 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 and nine times out of ten, the guy will say, well, she doesn't understand. And I'll say, what, is she dumb? Is she ungodly? Does she not know the Lord? And I love it because, again, it just fits this type. The guy will say to me, no way. She goes to BSF every week, man. She's the most godly woman I know. And I'm like, so let me get this straight. you got a really godly wife who's so conservative that she goes to BSF or CBS every week and is a leader in that ministry, and you don't listen to her after watching Fox News? What's wrong with that picture? See, here's what's wrong with that picture. Again, you're an island. You're just going to make your own choices, you and God. The reality is God says he doesn't want you to function that way. He wants you to be in community, as, as we heard about earlier, and hopefully another campus has heard about, community, in which it's iron sharpened iron, and when you're going against the grain, man, let other people speak into your life, godly people that you trust, especially your spouse. Jesus was thoughtful. He was God-led and God-directed about his choice to go against the grain. And he counted the cost, and we need to do so as well. But we're completely out of time. I, I knew this would happen. There's just a lot in this story here. And uh, so let me just wrap up with one thought. It's point B on your outline. If some of you don't get to fill in the blanks, you get mild anxiety, and I don't want you to leave that way. So <laughs> let me at least put the last point up here and let you fill in the blanks. And, and that is, here's the last thing the story teaches us, is that when you feel led by God, to go against the grain, and hopefully after today, today we all do, but move forward with love, truth, and faith as that which is guiding your motivations. Uh, real quick, uh, just look at the last verse here. This is what Jesus, this is how the story ends. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Most commentators point out here that Jesus is speaking on the one end in the hypothetical. He's not saying there's actually are righteous, healthy people in culture. He, he came to tell us we're all sick. He came to tell us we all need a savior and that he was it. 
Uh, what he is saying there is that there are some people who sense their need for a Savior, and there are some who are not quite there yet. Isn't it fascinating that those in Jesus' culture who sensed a need were the tax collectors and sinners, and the ones who were blind to their need were the pastors and the religious leaders of Jesus' day? That, that should scare some of us. But Jesus was motivated nonetheless by what? The need. He was motivated by the need. That's why I put it there in yellow. He was motivated by those who were far from God, and he wanted to bring love, truth, and faith to their lives. And so as you and I go against the grain, check your heart on a regular basis. Be motivated, both in your culture as well as in your personal life, by love and truth and faith. And marry those things together, and I think God will use us as we even go against the grain. Would you bow with me and as we pray as we go to our communion table. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you that your goodness and your grace come to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that as we each give thought to our lives about what grain we're going to go against, even this week in our culture, that God, you help us to be men and women who are mature, thoughtful, uh, and bold, and, and, and very God-led by you when it comes to going against the grain. And Lord, as we do, may we dig deep and find love and truth and faith to be that which is, is motivating us. And may others feel that and sense that from us. Work it and through us, we pray in Christ's name. And we all say together. Amen.